Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ and then to be sanctuary to each other and express sanctuary to this city. And so for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. Well, um, today we come to our ninth part of the Just Jesus series that we're looking at Jesus um, in the book of Mark. And um, last week we looked at the question of fasting and how Jesus reframes fasting for a new covenant. Um, But today we come to the next couple of stories that are on the surface of it about the Sabbath. That's what at first reading they seem to be about. But you know, there's a much deeper message that I think John Mark is really wanting us to notice, more than just the question of Sabbath. I think he is actually wanting us to see both the authority and the anger of Jesus. We're going to see that as we read these two stories. I think they're mainly about the authority and the anger of Jesus. Now, I know that those two aspects of uh, personality are are really controversial. Um, but I want to argue that um, when we when we in somewhat of a reductionist way just remove any of those kind of aspects of Christ from our thinking and he you know he changes in our mind and we just filter out anything to do with his authority or his anger there is a profound long-term negative cost on us actually we ultimately lose an awful lot positively if we humble ourselves and wrestle with these aspects of Jesus of God that are not as easy to understand as other elements of who he is I believe they are absolutely hugely life-giving and I want to argue this and you might think I'm crazy but I really believe it that with the two aspects today the authority and the anger of Christ that they actually are crucial that we have these in our hearts and in our minds when we think of Jesus if we are going to have the first three of the fruit of the spirit love joy peace for us to have love joy and peace requires seeing jesus with authority and anger now before you run out and think i'm bonkers let me try and persuade you of the deep connection between his authority and anger and the fruit of the spirit let's read together then from verse 23 of mark 2 one sabbath jesus was going through the grain fields and as his disciples walked along they began to pick some heads of grain The Pharisee said to him, Look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man 
is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely, to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked him, asked them, sorry, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. An incredible couple of incidents and we're just going to spend a few minutes looking at the fields, which is the first story, and then the synagogue, which is the second. And when we look at this first story that we've just read, the story of walking through the grain fields, it's clear in my opinion that there is um, there is a theme that John Mark wants his original readers to see, to feel, to hear, to be convinced of, which is the authority of Jesus Christ. And I believe, as I've said, this is crucial if we are to ever experience true peace and true joy. So let me let me walk through um, my thinking on this. So first of all, we see here, verse 23, 24, uh, Jesus on Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. As his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Lord, what are you, Lord, look, what is, sorry, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? So the Sabbath here was originally uh, an amazing good gift that you may know in Genesis, the first six days, God's busy working. And then on day seven, he rests and the Sabbath is introduced into the world order. And it's a picture like a, a busy set of parents who are preparing the house, preparing the nursery uh, for the arrival of their beloved. It's a little bit like Genesis days one, two, three, four, five, six. There's a busyness, there's an activity, there's an excitement, but the pinnacle is the arrival of Adam and Eve, the arrival of the little ones, as it were. And the Sabbath was almost meant to be like, you know, the first thing that Adam and Eve experience when they are created is not work, it's Sabbath. But this is just this, this amazing unhurried time where they are to be reminded that they are not God, the world doesn't rest on their shoulders, and they bring delight to the face of the Father. I almost have this image in my head of this little baby in a cot, and it's come home, it's just been born, and the parents are just gazing in joy. That is kind of the feel of the Sabbath, and that every seven days, the people of God were this extraordinarily blessed people in all the world who would stop again and again. They were known as, Israel was known as the stopping people, uh, in, the, in, in comparison with the rest of the world that was driven, driven, driven. And... Um, it was meant to be this just gift that reminded the people that you're just the beloved child of God and you can rest in his adoring love of you. But what happened was, as we see in this story, is that over time, the good gift of God had got twisted and perverted 
by the Pharisees. It become heavy. It become a weird source of like, um, like performance. You know, how well are you keeping the Sabbath? It was really dark, really awful that this had happened. And it was basically classic religion, where uh, the definition of religion, you could say, is where the focus is no longer on God and the graciousness of God, but on ourselves and us needing to perform for him. That's what had happened. And the Sabbath had become, therefore, not this kind source of joy and rest and refreshment. It become this hyper-policed, sacred cow that, that all these additional laws that were man-made had become intertwined with the, the divine plan originally. And it, it was such a mess. And it was this sacred cow nationally that could not be touched. Even though all the laws around it, that in theory they were breaking by eating a bit of grain and walking through the fields, they were not originally from God. So it might be a tiny bit if you're American, think of the national anthem in the States. And when that music plays, every person is on their feet. Every right hand is on their chest and everyone sings. You know, if someone doesn't do that, if they don't obey that, that is a big deal. And the Sabbath had kind of come a bit like that. It, you know, all these additional elements to it. You know, the national anthem isn't ultimately in the Bible. Uh, my American friends, we know this. Um, and... It's, you know, in England, people do sort of respect the national anthem, but nothing like here. And so this Sabbath then had become this supercharged, contentious thing that, that you couldn't ever, you know, ever break any of the hundreds of laws that were man-made additions to it and had changed totally. And so Jesus' response to their question, where they're saying what you're doing is, is unlawful, I love what he says. It's quite cheeky. He says, oh, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? I mean, these are the Bible guys. So he's kind of starting off with the first argument is like, oh, do you do you not actually know your Bibles? Um, because even the greatest king of Israel, he walked through, um, uh, he, he walked into the temple when he was hungry and he did something that was not technically allowed, but he understood the, the principle, which is crucial here. It's about the spirit of the thing not the letter of the law it's the spirit of it it's the spirit of the law and and he was saying look if king david did this then there's precedent here for things not always to be quite as tight as you imagine but then he says this the sabbath was made for man not man for the sabbath which i've already mentioned but here he says something profound so the son of man is lord even of the sabbath See, David has already been equating himself in some way with the greatest king of Israel, i.e. David. You know, he's like, do you remember that story about David? He did this thing that was pretty, you know, pretty controversial. And, and you can imagine them saying, yes, we do. What's that got to do with you, O carpenter? And he's implying already, I'm a greater king David. But then he makes it explicit by saying, so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He is saying the inventor of the Sabbath is standing beneath you. Sorry, in front of you, right here. And um, it almost reminds me slightly of, you know, if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, there's that bit where Gandalf, near the beginning, he's chatting with Bilbo and he's like, okay, Bilbo, give me the ring. I'm going to take it now. And um, Bilbo at first is sort of a, a compliant, but then he starts to kind of the golem in him, as it were, starts to say, I don't want to give it to you. And there's that moment where 
where um, Gandalf almost physically grows in stature before our very eyes and says, Bilbo! Give me the ring! And in that moment, Bilbo hands over the ring as the authority of Gandalf is put on display. That is what's happening in verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so we come to this first point, the authority of Christ. He is not just our teacher, our friend, our companion. He is the Lord, the boss. And I just want to pause and and ask, how does that make you feel? If you were in that moment around Jesus, that side of Jesus, he's not just the healer, the kind one with the poor, happy to be with the outcast. He is now, as it were, rising up and claiming divinity and utter cosmic authority. How does that make you feel? If you imagine, oh, gosh, Jesus is being very forceful. You see, for many of us at such a time as this, we honestly have had very damaging experiences of authority figures, parents, pastors, the police, politicians. And so often we bring that nervousness about authority into our Christian faith and just sort of filter out Jesus as the one who has authority because we we don't really want to deal with it because it triggers us. It makes us think about things we don't like. But I want to say this is that it is crucial to us to see Jesus as big and having authority if we're going to have peace and joy. Why? Simply put, the smaller that Jesus is, mentally in your life the bigger you have to be and the flip it the other way around the bigger that jesus is the smaller we get to be you see our ego wants us to feel big it wants to be in the driving seat but it's actually a lethal lethal step the first mistake that it or or, or, um, casualty when we are big because we don't like the idea of Jesus being an authority. So he's sort of unconsciously small in our thinking, and we're therefore unconsciously big. The first thing that we lose is peace. We become more of a people of anxiety. You see, if you think about the scene again, picture yourself with that Jesus who's just sort of semi-boomed out, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. This massively authority-declaring statement. You're probably going to think, wow, I'm with him. He's a bit scary, you know, as um, about Aslan, you know, it says he's not safe, but he is good. It's that kind of feel. I'm with him. And suddenly, in a sense, as a Christian, they would have realized this is all that really matters is that I'm with him. I'm with the one in authority. All other alliances, all other focuses are kind of secondary. I'm with him. His opinion, his will, his direction really is all that matters. And the anxiety that comes from choice melts away. And the Christian really is someone who, in essence, is someone who says, I am following someone else, which means I do not have to grapple with the performance-based way of viewing reality and trying to make the best choice. My my MO, my, my true north, is to ask Jesus as the Lord, what do you want? And give me the grace to obey, which 
It sounds heavy, but it's actually glorious because the pressure is no longer on us, therefore, to be responsible for making the right choices. It's on Jesus. The pressure's on Jesus when he's big. You know, I, I was um, struck when I first got married and I felt the Lord just speak to me and say, Josie is more my daughter than she is your wife. She will temporarily be your wife, but she will eternally be my daughter. You know, and I just felt like the Lord say, join the dots, Tom, treat her well. You know, I don't get to choose in latter years. Oh, maybe I made a, a wrong choice. Maybe I'll, you know, I'll walk away. No, 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 no. You know, it is a done deal. She is the king's daughter and gloriously now, and obviously she is totally perfect anyway. Uh, but, it, you know, our kids feel that sense of peace. Because they know, mum and dad, it isn't ultimately about even their affections for each other. It's about their joyful submission to the good authority of the king. Who has said, marriage is for life. And I will give you all you need, but involve me. And I was talking to a friend of mine recently about Sanctuary Church. And I said, I said something like, you know, what are the things you like about it or something. And he thought for a moment, he said something very profound. He said, you know, the thing I most love is that I know the Lord has told me to give myself to this it's the lord he's the reason i'm here which at first you know it, 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 you sort of think oh he's not he, you know it's not like he's saying oh this church is just everything i've ever wanted he was saying there's things i, I like and, and some things i don't but tom the reason i'm here is because he's told me to be here which is actually very freeing for him and for me so there is a peace that comes and i think prayer is uh, how prayerful we are is a measure of how much we see jesus truly as authoritative if we don't pray much we probably don't see him as big uh, and many of the anxieties we carry are because he's secretly too small he's not the lord he hasn't got the authority in our hearts that that we need him to have so that life becomes about following him and the pressures on him because he's he's making the decisions. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Prayer is the litmus test of how we're doing on this. But it's not just about peace that comes from knowing his authority. It's also about joy. You see, when we look at scenes like this and others, we can often sort of see the comical gap between the incredible Jesus and the slightly blundering disciples. We kind of chortle to ourselves, oh, oh, oh poor Jesus, he's got to make do with these disciples. And, and yet we forget, fail to see that very same gap between ourselves as disciples and Jesus. Although, of course, it's absolutely there. Whereas actually... Um, God wants us to, I think, um, the more that he is big and we are small, we're very beloved, but we are in a sense small and he is big. The more we, we have joy because we don't need to take ourselves so seriously. We aren't ultimately that important. We are very loved, but God is God. Jesus is the Lord. He is the one who is holding all things together by the power of his word. Hallelujah. It is not on us. We do not have to be perfect husbands, dads, leaders, although we aspire to be the best we can. Our hope is not ultimately in our lordship, our bigness. We rejoice in our weakness, in our smallness, whilst at the same time saying the one that I am with is the great Lord, the great King, the leader of leaders who is able to do all things. 
I, I love a uh, really great Netflix show at the moment called Longmire. It's a neo-Western. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out. And uh, Longmire, he's pretty cool. He's the sheriff. And, and I often think, yeah, I guess I feel pretty similar to him. Uh, but actually, the reality is he has three bl- blundering deputies. And the most blundering of them all is called Ferg. And, and uh, honestly, you know, Ferg... If there's a mistake to be made or a misinterpretation to happen, that will happen with Ferg. And you're almost like, gosh, it would be easier for Longmire to just ha- not have Ferg around. But he loves Ferg, and so he gives him jobs to do, and you know, and um, Ferg is growing. And honestly, we're more like Ferg than we are than the sheriff. Let's be honest. And actually, that's okay. Like the blundering disciples, we too are blundering people who in many ways um you know man we are so we have so much dignity in jesus we have so much love from the father and this power that he gives us but at another level you know we are just we are children of god we are not super adults who are mature we are children of god who trust in our dad to do what he's going to do and that shifts things that shifts things. One of the, tr- the clearest traits I've seen in older, more mature men and women throughout them all is a shift away from the sort of narcissistic, very serious approach to myself that younger people sometimes have to just being kind of grateful that almost anything's gone right. Uh, and as they've got older, they've realized, you know, I am so weak and I didn't even know it when I was younger. And I'm so much more grateful now and joyful because Jesus is big and I'm small. Okay, so first of all, authority is crucial. Jesus's authority is crucial for peace and joy. If you're struggling with anxiety or just dullness of spirit, it could be because Christ is so, he's too small in your heart and the Lord wants to rise him up so that you might be able to just trust his will and to trust in him to be the hero, not you. Secondarily, we see the second incident is the synagogue. And, and here we see an even more controversial aspect of Jesus' personality, his anger. It's very, very clear. Um, we see this here. Uh, he wants to heal the man uh, with the shriveled hand. And in verse 5, he says, He looked around at them, that's the Pharisees and the leaders, in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. So we see here in this one scene, Jesus's compassion for the victim and kind of corresponding equal and opposite anger for the perpetrator. And this is what I want to say is that the love of God takes the form of both compassion for the victim and holy anger towards the perpetrator. And I would even go as far to say, because God is love, therefore his appropriate anger to the perpetrators is as much an expression of his love as his compassion to the victim it's not like compassion equals love only it does but there is a firmness there is a sense of um passion for righteousness and justice that is at the very core of jesus that we cannot filter out and it was interesting is that anger's already come up twice in Jesus in the last few incidents. So, for example, if you looked uh, in verse 40 of chapter 1, it says a man with leprosy came to him, to Jesus. He begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you'll make me clean. Verse 41, Jesus was indignant 
If you look in your footnotes, it says, or filled with compassion. The oldest manuscripts say Jesus was filled with anger. I love that. Jesus is indignant. He's filled with compassion. He's filled with anger. It's almost like deliberately in the Greek, there's this mystery of how do we translate this expression, this moment, because it's both compassion and anger all mixed together. You see, I do believe that Jesus probably was a pacifist. That's my personal view. I don't think there's any examples of Jesus actually in any way like being violent to people. And he repeatedly said, love your enemies. But what does love really mean? Did it just be kind and nice and just, you know, be just really passive? No, I think his love takes the form of both compassion for victims and a firmness and a strength and a defending guardianship towards um, the weaker person in the, standing up in, in, in face of the uh, perpetrator. I, we cannot you know, get around the fact that Jesus here again is described by the Holy Spirit as angry. Now, this is interesting because I think, again, for many of us, we tend to think of Christian maturity as this Zen-like removal of any emotions. I certainly have thought that. And I often feel actually quite shameful if I ever feel um, angry. Honestly, I don't think in my younger years I saw particularly healthy examples of anger. I tended to just see, you know more like volatility which is not what we're talking about um god's holy anger his passion his righteousness is different to our fallen volatility but what can happen is if you don't see that modeled what i did was just basically equate well anger means the things i've seen in the world around me that are not definitely not good therefore i shouldn't be angry but I think, I would be as bold as to say this, I don't think we can become like Christ unless we get angry about the right things. Now, this is a fine line. Hear me. I know it says, in your anger, do not sin. And, you know, this is a whole uh, minefield of misunderstanding. But the fundamental truth is that Jesus was angry and he was God. And there were certain things that meant, his love meant he had to get appropriately firm and strong and angry and indignant over things that were just wrong just wrong and just as i think actually in a similar way I, I i often used to pretend i was never sad because in some ways the models of sadness i'd seen were just really um terrifying depression but actually there is an appropriate sadness there's an appropriate lament and griefing grieving that we we if we're going to be like jesus he was a man of grief as well as anger so we cannot become like jesus without appropriate sadness and anger and indignancy it's it's a profound thought i think for many of us um but just imagine how you would have felt that guy with a withered hand that jesus was indignant he didn't just have compassion he for the first time in that man's life kind of communicated to him i'm i know like i'm with you i see your pain and I see how you've always just been um, overlooked by the so-called spiritual leaders of your community. They don't care about you. And that is wrong. Can you imagine how loved he would have felt with Jesus' compassion and his anger? 
If Jesus hadn't been angry and just been passive and allowed the evil of their hardness of heart, that would have been itself evil. It would have been cowardice. It wouldn't have been the heart of our God. And so we, 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 have, we have to understand that, um, that we see here the anger of Jesus is crucial, actually, when we think about love. Those, those hard-hearted people, the most loving thing they could have experienced was Jesus' anger. And for that guy with the shriveled hand, the most loving thing um, was him knowing that Jesus had compassion and seeing Jesus also sticking up for him in a way that probably he never had had. And what's fascinating is this hand was not a life-threatening thing. It was a definite thing of shame but Jesus was so bothered about their hardness of heart, even over something that wasn't life-threatening. Isn't that amazing? You think if Jesus, you know, if it was like, oh, they were hard of heart around people who were dying on the streets in agony, that would make more sense. But Jesus was deeply bothered by their hardness of heart about something that wasn't that big a deal. It was kind of cosmetic i mean don't get me wrong really serious but not you know not not in a not in the order of other things like leprosy and i think that's profound you see for me to realize that in my life the things that are my equivalent of the shriveled hand real things that have been difficult and the times when i've felt almost shame around things because of people's responses or their hardness of heart i jesus cares Jesus' love for me is not just compassion to me, but it's firmness towards those who, in some senses, have sinned against me. And in the last few years, I've the Spirit has really reminded me of some things in my past growing up that I just kind of blocked out and deceived myself and thought, oh yeah, my upbringing was perfect. And it wasn't the worst, but there were things that weren't right. You know, a bit like the withered hand, it, it isn't the worst thing, but... It, but there were things, there are things about it that were really hard. And the last couple of years, God has he's reminded me of things, sins against me as a younger boy, sins of commission and sins of sins of omission. For the first time, I've sensed Jesus's like heart of like Tom. I really, really cared. When you in those situations experience those things, I really cared. And I had such compassion for you. And you know what? I had appropriate anger towards those who didn't do what they should have done. And for the first time in my life, I felt the Holy Spirit show me that side of Jesus. And it has been life changing in terms of me having the courage then to talk to various people, <clears throat> not in an out of control way, but to say, look, I want to be kind to you, but I also want to be kind to myself. And I just think that some of those things that happened were not right and i think jesus was really bothered about it and you know what i think he wants me to not just love you and to pretend it's all fine but actually to for love to have the expression of appropriate firmness and even appropriate anger towards some of those things so that forgiveness can come reconciliation can come and those conversations have been had and i'm pleased to report they have been so deeply healing but here's the final twist, and with this I'll finish, is the second stage of my own personal journey on this is that I have also come to realise that that kind of hard-hearted person that, you know, Jesus has reminded me 
um, sort of stands for the people in my life who in some senses kind of sinned against me, that kind of person is not just out there, those other people, it's in me as well. In a sense, I am two people. You know, however it's happened, I have internalized those self, those kind of critical voices that in some senses were external, have become internal, which is why I've battled shame and fear and anxiety and guilt, because so much of my inner critic has just been left unchecked. And it's like the father said, Tom, I have been watching this part of you relentlessly lie to the other part of you saying, you're not safe, you're behind, you're not enough, you didn't perform well enough, you need to try harder. And this kind of exhausting inner critic in me that um, is entirely internal I have realized God's invited me to say, hey, listen, just as Jesus was both compassionate and very firm with two different people, Tom, as you are, in a sense, two people, you need to learn to agree with Jesus's review of you and love for you and to know that love takes the form of both compassion and firmness and even anger. And increasingly, I found myself learning to agree with, I think, how Jesus deals with me in these two ways is to see those parts of me that are so quick to come to the surface that want to just bring shame and anxiety and fear and hostility against myself. You know, there's things I would say I say to myself very subconsciously that are far harsher than I would ever dream of saying to other person. You know, and self-loathing can seem like this holy path, but it's absolutely destructive. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He wants us, of course, to be convicted when when the bully in us is bullying ourselves. And we need to be firm with that. But it's so that we can quieten that voice down and learn to agree with the kindness of God and actually see his love um, as something that is personal and internal. So to conclude then, I believe that... Um, that the church, for understandable reasons, in many parts of the West, has lost these two elements of Jesus, the authority and the anger. And as a result of that, I think many of us are peaceless, joyless and loveless. And I am so excited that I believe that as we, as a church plant, start to really grasp these unpopular, uh, in some ways, aspects of Christ, and as we allow the nuance and the, um, you know, the specific detailed understanding of what we mean by those words, there is, I believe, joy and peace and love that will flow more and more into our lives and into our community and into the great surrounding city of San Francisco in the Bay. This Bay Area needs to know and see and taste a people who are at peace because the great Lord has led them and they're not going to be rocked and and they are joyful because they don't take themselves seriously because they're not really the hero because Jesus is big and, and they are beloved but they're kind of small and that we just are in a ongoing abiding of our Father's love for us, just like that man experienced in the temple again and again, that Jesus, he teaches us 
to both stand up to the critic inside us and to lavish that other part of us with the love of God. And man, as we do that, as we learn to really let these aspects of Jesus come into our lives, we can dare to believe that the ripple effects will be wide and significant.